This is the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast, coming to you from the heart of Honolulu, Hawaii. Hui Kala is a dynamic family of faith committed to solid Bible teaching, discipleship, and helping you grow in your faith. Grab your Bible and prepare to dig deep into the Word with Pastor Anthony King. Grab your Bibles, turn to the book of Philippians, though, tonight, uh, this morning. We're back in the book of Philippians. We took a break for a minute. But we've been going verse by verse to the book of Philippians since the beginning of 2020. Uh, and let me tell you this, we're almost done. And by the grace of God, we will have completed the book of Philippians by Thanksgiving is the plan. Now, some of you might know that I have an ability sometimes to stretch it a little bit or to get a little bit more out of it, but we're hoping to be done by Thanksgiving or so as the plan. And then 2022, we're going to start off with a brand spanking new theme uh, and go from there. So Philippians chapter 4, if you missed our Fear Less series, I hope it was a help and encouragement to you. Ten weeks where we talked, took a look at what the Bible had to say about fear. We really just kind of skimmed the surface on that. So much good stuff, but if you missed out on that, you can get caught up on our podcast or through the Hui Kala app. We're going back to the book of Philippians, and so we uh, find ourselves in Philippians chapter 4, verse number 1 here today. And so if you missed anything so far at all, uh, use the Hui Call app to get caught up on that. Also, if you have the Hui Call app on your mobile device, uh, if you click on today's uh, series, uh, Magnify Jesus, and then open up, uh, a, the uh, click on the message for today, there's a button that says fill in notes. You can actually click on that and type in your notes into your web browser, and then email them to yourself when you're done. Uh, and all of our notes have the, every, every uh, scripture reference we'll take a look at today uh, as well. So uh, hopefully that's a help to you. Philippians chapter 4, as we get into this, uh, Paul kind of shifts gears a little bit uh, in Philippians 4. Just to give you a little bit of context and by way of review, because we've been out of Philippians for a minute. Paul wrote the letter to the church at Philippi, which was a church that he had personally started himself on his second missionary journey. And so he, uh, he goes and starts the uh, church at Philippi from scratch. He pastors it for about 18 months, and then he moves on uh, and, and plants other churches and continues to do other things. And while he's uh, uh, away, Paul gets imprisoned for preaching the gospel, and Paul writes a letter back to the church at Philippi about 11 years or so later after he had, had pastored the church, writes a letter back to them from prison. And so we sometimes refer to the book of Philippians as one of Paul's prison epistles or prison letters that he writes. So he writes back to the church of Philippi and basically just pours out a lot of encouragement, a lot of joy, a lot of praise that he gives. Uh, it's one of Paul's few letters that he writes that there's no uh, rebuke or criticism or a challenge to get rid of false teaching or anything like that. But there is one portion in this entire letter of joy uh, that God has, uh, that Paul writes that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that there's a little bit of correction that needed to take place. And that's where we find ourselves today, Philippians chapter 4. We're going to read verses 1 through 3 this morning. Philippians chapter 4, verse number 1. Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved and longed for, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved, I beseech you, Odious, and I beseech Synecti, that they be of the same mind in the Lord. And I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women which labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and with my other fellow laborers whose names are found in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. So here we find the one portion of scripture where Paul gives a word of correction. Two ladies in the church were having a problem. We don't know what the problem was. And frankly, we don't really care. 
Now, again, people have written books on what they think the problem was between Yodius and Synecdoche, and it was probably this, it could have been that. And all of it's just pure conjecture. And let me help you with something. Where the Bible is not specifically clear, God intended to not be specifically clear. We should never read into Scripture or figure, try to figure out what God's doing and things like that. I don't, I don't think it's wrong to kind of maybe wonder. Like, hey, I wonder what Paul's thorn in the flesh could have been. But when we spend an inordinate amount of time trying to figure out what Paul's thorn in the flesh was, we miss the point of why Paul had the thorn in the flesh. So again, we don't try to read into Scripture. We don't know what the problem was with these two ladies, and frankly, it doesn't really matter for you and I. God just has some really good stuff he wants to teach us from this passage. Uh, I read a lot of books. I try to read uh, 40, 50 books a year. And uh, early on in, in my uh, earlier years, in, and especially earlier in ministry, I like to read a lot of books on leadership. And so, uh, you know, whether it be, you know, Zig Ziglar or Jack Welch or uh, Lee Iacocca, guys like this that were just phenomenal leaders uh, according to the world's standards. I want to know more about them. What makes these guys tick? What can I learn from uh, what they did? And what can I learn what not to do from what they did? Things like that. There arose a really popular series of leadership books, especially like in the probably the early to mid-90s. John Maxwell became uh, very, very famous uh, for this style of what they called servant leadership. And the idea behind servant leadership was this new principle of leadership where the CEO didn't sit in a corner office gazing out on the 86th floor but he actually got down with the guys in the mail room and rolled up his, his sleeves and got to work sorting mail for a day. And he got to know his people and began to share with them his story and what he had done. And instead of spending more time in his office or in a boardroom with executives, he spent time with his people just getting stuff done, showing that he was just one of the guys. And this idea that a CEO would then uh, humble himself and do the everyman blue-collar job and get to know his people was a revolutionary leadership concept. But for those of us who read the Bible go, wait, 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 wait a minute, that's not new. Jesus Christ, creator God of the universe, washed his servants' feet. You want to talk about servant leadership, everybody's looking around and say, hey, well, I wonder who's going to wash feet tonight. And Jesus grabs a towel and a basin and goes person to person and washes their feet, which was the lowest form of slavery that you could imagine at the time. Jesus was the type of person that didn't just bark out orders. He actually walked with people and got stuff done. And so this idea of of servant leadership is definitely for us Christians not a new concept at all. It's just a biblical concept of leadership. And so we're taking a look at this passage here today as Paul uh, encourages the church there to kind of get on the same page again. Paul is really encouraging them as a spiritual leader. And I'm entitled today's message, Encouraging Others by Spiritual Leadership. And you might think to yourself, well, well, Pastor, I'm not really a leader. I just show up here on Sunday and things like that. If you're a child of God, God has called you to lead and influence others. If you're a husband, God's called you to lead your wife. If you have children, God's called you to lead your children. If you're neither a husband or a wife and you don't have children, God's called you to be a spiritual influence in your workplace or in your school or wherever you go on your block, in your community, with your friends. God has called you to a position of spiritual influence. And again, the idea is that I'm not, as a leader, I'm not drawing people to me. I'm not making a platform for myself. I'm drawing people to Christ by the way that I guide, by the way that I lead, by the way that I influence. And so Paul here, he's been disconnected from this church for over a decade, but he writes to them from prison and he encourages them. 
He challenges them. He points them in the right direction again and really functions as a spiritual leader. So again, leadership doesn't necessarily even require close proximity because Paul was writing from prison to the church at Philippi via letter, but he was still leading them and guiding them towards Jesus. Paul had no official affiliation with the church. Paul wasn't the pastor of the church any longer. He held no church office. He wasn't even a member of the church, but he still could provide leadership because leadership doesn't sit around and wait for a title, doesn't wait for somebody to tell them what's, what's going to take place, not looking for a position. It's just looking for the opportunity to, are you ready for this? Serve. And so if you and I would be servants of God, then we should also at the same time be spiritual leaders. And Paul gives us some guidelines on how to be a good spiritual leader by encouraging others here in this passage this morning. As we jump off in uh, verse number one here, we see first of all that spiritual leadership requires hard conversations. Oftentimes leaders will have to tell people things that they do not want to hear. That's part of my job as a pastor, providing spiritual leadership for our church. Sometimes I gotta sit down at the table with people and tell them things that they don't wanna hear. Hey, the majority of the problems that you're facing right now are problems that you have brought on yourself. (laughs) Nobody likes to hear that. I understand that. To sit down with a guy and say, hey, the reason you're in the situation that you're in is because you don't have a spiritual bone in your body. (laughs) Nobody wants to hear that. Everybody wants to be patted on the head and told that they're doing a great job and everybody else around them is out to get them and it's not their fault, just keep doing what you're doing. Real leadership, and especially spiritual leadership, doesn't allow things to go unchecked. We have to have difficult conversations from time to time. But get this, there's a spiritual way to have these conversations. And then there's an angry, carnal, self-centered, selfish way to have these conversations. We want to be spirit-filled. We want to do these things God's way. That if we have to confront someone, we can confront them in love with lots of grace and they can walk away a stronger person as a result of our time together. And Paul kind of gives us the framework to be able to walk that out. The Bible speaks specifically about three different types of conversations that we can have with other people. The first of those is edification. The word edification means to build up. The Bible says that we should be really careful with the words that we choose and our words should always edify or build up. The word edify is actually a construction term where we get the term edifice. It means to place one block on top of another. The word uh, edify also is the root word in the English language of the word education. So education is really just laying one block on top of another and building someone up. And so the idea of edification is whether through my thoughts, my words, my actions, I'm using that as an opportunity to encourage someone or to build them up. One of the things that I love about Huey Collin, you might hate it, but there'll, there'll come a point where you love it, I promise, is our 10-minute or so fellowship time in the middle of our song portion. Some people strategically schedule their arrival at church to arrive after that. First of all, shame on you for that. But here's the thing. That should be a time of edification. Hey, how was your week? I prayed for you this week. How'd that thing work out at work? I've been meaning to ask you about that. Hey, did you get the test results back from the doctor yet? I've been praying all week about that. Hey, how are things? Are you guys starting to get settled in here? Is there anything I can do for you? Those are words of edification. They build up. Great to see you. Angela and I have lived the last 20 years of our life trying to find ways to build other people up. Now, again, if you're a spiritual leader in your home, husbands, you need to be building your wives up. Wives, you need to build your husband up. 
you have children, you need to, to find out, uh, make sure that you have plenty of time to praise the things that they're doing right instead of tearing down the things that they've done wrong. But edification requires an intentional effort to build people up. You've been around people like that before where you just being around them just gives life to you because they're such an encourager, they're such a help. They always find the, the good in a situation. The Bible says that we should be those types of people that our words, the Bible says, should be seasoned with grace so that the receiver is served by grace. It's a crazy thought that people should leave a conversation with me feeling better rather than feeling worse. But sometimes as a spiritual leader, we've got to have a difficult conversation from time to time. There's times where as a spiritual leader, you need to learn to exhort. And the second type of, of conversation we can have is an exhortation. Exhortation is a strong encourage or an urge to do something. I had the opportunity to talk to uh, uh, some folks out on the curb uh, this afternoon, or this after this morning after the 8 o'clock service. Guys, great to see you. I'm really proud of the growth that I see in your guys' life. I noticed you guys being attending a small group on Wednesday nights, and it's great that you get plugged into the community. Let me encourage you. We've got baptism coming up in two weeks. I'll encourage you to sign up for baptism and be baptized because it honors the Lord. It identifies you with Jesus Christ. It identifies you with a body of doctrine. And it also identifies you with Christians throughout all of world history who have also been baptized as a symbol of their faith in Jesus Christ. And so I want to encourage you, I don't know that it's something you should pray about because the Bible commands us to be baptized. I don't know that it should be a matter of prayer. I think you should just obey. If you have questions, please let me know. What was that? That was an exhortation. I really want to encourage you to do this. According to the Bible, baptism after you've been saved isn't really an option. You just need to do it. And so that was a strong challenge that I gave to them. And so exhortation sometimes can be mixed together if it's done well with edification. Again, hey, you guys are doing a great job. I noticed you've been a part of a small group. You've been faithful to church. I'm excited about the things that God's doing in your life. But let me challenge you to take it a step up. Hey, you've been attending Sunday mornings. That's great. But did you know that our Sunday night services is a totally different opportunity to be able to learn and grow in the Bible and grow in God's Word? I want to encourage you to come back on Sunday nights too because the more you hear the Bible taught and preached, the more that you'll grow as a Christian. Hey, you're not part of a small group yet on Wednesday night? Let me encourage you to be a part of our small group. I think it's really, really important that you get plugged into a small group. Because this gives you the opportunity to get to know other people in our church. You might look at this and go, wow, what a huge church. But once you get in a small group, it's like the same 8 to 12 people every single week. And you get to know them really quickly. We pray together. We share our, our burdens together. We study the Bible together and we grow together. You really need to be a part of that. That is exhortation. I'm calling you out to ask you to take a step up. And you go, whew, man, praise God. I'm glad we got a pastor like that. No, no, no. These are not pastoral conversations. These are Christian conversations. Every person who considers themselves a Christian should be having these conversations with other Christians within our church. That's how this works. So exhortation isn't just a job of the pastor. Exhortation is a job for every Christian. But then there's the last type of hard spiritual leadership conversation we have to have sometimes, and that is a rebuke. A rebuke is a express sharp, it means to express sharp disapproval or criticism of someone because of their behavior or their actions. So, I sit down with the guy and say, look, I'm just going to shoot you straight. You want to continue to look at pornography, you are going to ruin your life. You forfeit God's blessings upon your life, you're stealing from the future joy of your marriage, you're committing adultery, 
and you're in open rebellion to sin and God doesn't play around with sin. That's a rebuke. It's not a like, oh buddy, it's okay. All guys look at porn. It's fine. Don't worry about it. Everybody struggles with lust. It's not that big of a deal. No, we're not going to have that conversation because that's not a biblical conversation. You need to understand where you stand before God and you need to get this right before it destroys you. Now, again, when I rebuke, I need to make sure that I do it in love, that the person who's on the receiving end of this understands. I'm saying this out of love for you. I'm not saying it because I'm mad at you. I'm saying it because I care about you. Keep your finger here in Philippians. We're going to come back in a sec. But turn over, if you would, to the book of Titus. Titus is a really short book right after 2 Timothy. First and 2 Timothy we, and Titus, we sometimes refer to as pastoral epistles. Paul is writing letters to pastors. And so Paul writes to Titus here, who's kind of a younger pastor. He's giving him guidance on how to pastor well. Uh, Titus chapter 2, verse number, um, we'll start in verse number 13. Titus chapter 2, verse number 13, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. He tells Titus, hey, Titus, as you preach, as you lead people, as you guide them to Jesus, never forget about the blessed hope that we have in Jesus Christ. We sang about it this morning, oh, glorious day, the day that Jesus Christ returns for us uh, as his bride. Man, what a day that's going to be. Verse number 14, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Verse number 14 is kind of the gospel in a nutshell, that Jesus Christ died for our sins so that he could redeem us or purchase us back from our, uh, our slavery to sin. And do what? Purify us unto himself. The word purify means to sanctify or to set apart or to make more like Jesus, zealous of good works, that we would be excited about doing the right thing. The word peculiar doesn't mean weird like we use in our vernacular. It means we're a purchased possession that belongs to Jesus. So I want to get really clear before we get into verse number 15. What he's setting up here that Jesus Christ is coming back one day. And don't f- keep in mind with that the gospel which saved your soul. And here's what he says in verse number 13. These things speak, exhort, and rebuke with all authority and let no man despise thee. Hey, Titus, hang on to preaching the gospel. Tell people that they need Jesus. Tell people that Jesus Christ is coming back one day. Hang on to that. I want you to speak it. I want you to exhort it. And if you have to, I want you to rebuke it. And here's what he says. With all authority. Now, I want you to put on your thinking caps for just a minute. This is a big brain moment, all right? When he says... Rebuke it with all authority. What authority is he speaking of here? You want to take a guess? Somebody said the word of God. Anybody else? Okay. Everybody's nervous about saying the wrong thing out loud. I got you. I'm with you. The fear of man, it's a snare. It'll get you every time. But... There's a joke for those of you that were here last week. Oh my goodness, you guys. Here's the thing. If Titus' authority was given to him by Paul, then he could rebuke people and say, you don't have the right to tell me that. Oh yeah, I do. Paul said that I could. 
Like, bro, who's Paul? I don't know Paul. Well, well, he told me that I could say this. Well, tell Paul that he can shove it because I don't know Paul. If his authority is based on Paul, if Titus's authority is based on his position as pastor, you need to do this because I said so and I'm the pastor. Very, very flimsy authority there. But if the authority of a rebuke is the word of God, you don't have a problem with me, you've got a problem with the Bible. You are in violation of God's word and you need to repent and make it right. There's no two ways about that. Well, I don't like that. Take it up with the Bible then because I have no part of this other than to call you to what God's word says. So when we talk about a rebuke, it's important that we know that we rebuke sin we rebuke rebellion against God. We rebuke, rebuke doctrinal error. We don't rebuke people because they frustrate us or because we're in a bad mood. And the end result of a rebuke is that one would come to repentance. I don't rebuke somebody because they hurt my feelings. I don't go after somebody harshly because I don't like, you know, the way their kids dress. I don't rebuke somebody harshly because... They took my parking spot, sitting in my seat, they moved my Bible. I rebuke people who are in sin. I rebuke people that have rebelled against God, and we rebuke doctrinal error. And when I say we, I'm talking about we that are spiritual leaders. Well, nobody's ever told me I'm in charge. Good, listen up. You're in charge. I just did it. As a, as a Christian, it's your job to stand against sin to stand for holiness and righteousness, and to stand against doctrinal error. That's your job. That's not a pastor's job. It's a pastor's job to rally the troops to go after it. But it's your job to stand for truth. And so here in this case, when we need to rebuke, we make, need to make sure that we do it for the right purposes. And here's the problem that people get sideways with when it comes to rebukes. Is that if a rebuke is not done because of doctrinal, biblical error, or rebellion or sin. A rebuke is done based on preference or a personal uh, issue and or done with a terrible spirit. You've immediately shut down someone who is your brother or sister in Christ. Shut down. Bless God, some of you guys around here need to get a haircut walking around with hair touching your ears like a bunch of women. Uh, I don't think that's the right place to use a rebuke? I don't know that's an appropriate context for that. Bunch of ladies looking like Jezebels. I saw one of the ladies in our church the other day. She was out in the park in yoga pants. Can you believe it? Christian women in yoga pants. You need to get right with God. I don't know that that's the right place to use a rebuke. Here's the thing. We think that's funny, right? But let me just tell you, there are churches across America that this morning, that was the message that they brought to the pulpit. And, and people walk away going like, I love Jesus, but can I still like work out in yoga pants? Is that okay? I love Jesus, but I didn't get a chance to make it to the barber this week. Does that make me a terrible Christian? And people walk away scratching their head going like, wow, I'm really confused on what it means to be a Christian. So again, rebukes, strong harsh talks that we need to have. Man, you need to start showing your wife some love and respect the same way that Jesus loves and respects his church. And that's a non-negotiable if you call yourself a Christian man. Rebuke. 
You're welcome. <laughs> Ladies, you need to love and respect and honor your husband even if he's a reprehensible human being because if you follow Jesus, the book of 1 Peter says that your wife can be drawn to Christ as the way that you live. And so women, you need to live like Jesus this week and serve your husband. Rebuke. Kids, I don't want to leave anybody out here. Kids, you need to honor, obey, respect your parents. They're smarter than you think that they are, and you don't know the first thing about anything. And all the parents said, amen, Amen. preach it. Man, everybody's fired up today. Here's the thing. There's an appropriate place for a rebuke, but here's the good part. I can sit down with a guy and be three inches from his face and tell him, say, dude, you're going to wreck your life if you don't change this, and you need to change it ASAP, and if you blow your life up, I'm 100% off the hook for this because you chose a path of destruction for yourself. I can sit down and have a conversation with a guy like that, and then 30 seconds later, he give me a hug and tell me that he loves me. You know why? Because we have a relationship. And harsh conversation can be had, difficult conversations can be had if they're coming from the right place and so Paul, Paul assured the Philippians of his love before he ever exhorted him. T- turn back to Philippians, uh, if you would, Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, verse number 1. Therefore, my brethren, so uh, let's just count here. Keep a finger. Every time Paul says something kind or enduring in verse number 1, just keep your own count going, Okay. Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved, longed for my joy, my crown, stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. I counted eight. I don't know how many you got, but eight or so times. In one verse, Paul just heaps love, encouragement, praise on them because Paul knows that the next thing might be a little harsh for people to hear. He says, okay, now we got two ladies, Yodius and Synecti. You guys need to get back on the same page together. And everybody else in the church needs to love them and encourage them and help them with whatever's going on with them so that we can get back to the work of serving Jesus together. But Paul doesn't speak a word of exhortation. He doesn't even rebuke them at this point. And this is one of, of Paul's letters that's really unique in the fact that there's no rebuke throughout the whole letter. It's just a lot of love, joy, appreciation, kindness, grace encouragement. This would be the harshest thing that Paul says throughout the entire writing of Philippians. And before he does it, he just like loads up the encouragement before he ever even gives a word of exhortation. You and I would be wise to follow Paul's example that when we have to have difficult conversations, we should load it up with a lot of grace first. Sometimes as a kid, when my parents would discipline me, sometimes they did it out of anger and frustration. I'd ruin their day, so now they were going to ruin my day. That's not God's heart, first of all. And again, I don't blame my parents for it. They were doing the best that they could. They were really first-generation Christians trying to do their best. But before we discipline our kids, we sit our kids down. Before we ever have to spank, before we ever ground or take away privileges and things like that, and say, hey, look, I love you, and this is why I'm doing this. I don't enjoy discipline. It's the worst part of my job as a dad. But I love you enough to allow you to, to, to... not allow you to continue in sin because it's going to ruin your life. And so whether it's a spanking that's coming or loss of privileges that's coming or things like that, I'm doing this because I want you to remember this moment for the rest of your life. 
that we never have to come back here ever again because I love you and I care for you. And, and I don't enjoy this. It's going to be over really quickly. I promise you that. And when it's over, I'm going to give you a hug and tell you that I love you. And we're going to go back in the living room with everybody else and finish watching the movie that we're watching. Or we're going to play some Mario Kart. Or I'll throw order a pizza for us for dinner or something like that. This is not going to ruin the rest of our day. But right now, we need to deal with this so we never have to come back here again. Now, here's what you've done. Here's the consequences for it. Let's get it over with so we can move on with life. Do you have anything you'd like to say? Man, most kids don't enjoy getting a spanking, but at least they understand what's going on. They understand my heart. My dad one time says, says this is going to hurt me a lot worse than it's going to hurt you. No, it doesn't. You're the one swinging the belt. Stop, you know? Like, it doesn't hurt you at all. I get it now that I'm a dad, you know? But it didn't at the time. But again, we can receive hard things if we know that there's a lot of love behind it. You see, the deeper relationship, the more power is given to an edification, an exhortation, or rebuke. The closer that you are to someone in a relationship, the more vulnerability you have in your relationship, first of all. Secondly, the greater ability they have to be able to speak truth into your life. And so the times that I've had to have a rebuke, I've generally done it with men that I know well, that know that I love them, that don't question my motives. If you've been a who we call long enough, you know I have no desire to run your life. <laughs> I struggle to run my own life. I'm not trying to run yours. But if we have to have a hard conversation because I see you about to blow your life up, I'm going to have it. If I see you headed for the, uh, the bridge that says bridge out, I'm going to wave the flag and do everything I can to pop your tires before you go over the cliff because I care about you. And so, but I'm not going to rebuke somebody. If this is your first Sunday here at Who We Call, first of all, thanks for being here. I'm delighted to have you as our guest. I'm not going to drag you out on the sidewalk and get in your face. <laughs> it's not. I don't know you. You don't know me. But when I have a connection with someone, when they know where my motives are, that's why, again, a lot of times in my earlier days of being really zealous for God, I would go to the office and light people up with Scripture, like, bam, you're a sinner, you need Jesus, you did this wrong. And what I did was actually hardened them to the gospel so that when I really wanted to help, they were just like, no thanks, you just want to judge me and beat me over the head with the Bible. I'm not interested in that. No, I really want to pray for you. I heard you're going through a rough spot, I want to pray for you. Yeah, keep that. I don't need that. But if people can know we have a heart of love and grace, hey, here's what I believe, but at the end of the day, I don't judge you for it. I don't have the right to judge you for it. It's what I believe based on the Bible, but I don't think you're a terrible person. I think I'm a terrible person. But the only difference is is that Jesus saved me and made me different. But I care about you. And again, if we can lay a foundation of true love, kindness, and grace, we can say hard things when we need to. That's why, again, generally when I share the gospel with people, I start off with the fact that I want you to know that Jesus Christ loves you and he gave his life for you. God only had one son and his name was Jesus. And he was willing to sacrifice his one son to pay for your sins. That's how much he loves you. But I want you to know that as much as God loves you, it breaks his heart because you've broken his law. You've sinned against God not just once or twice, but every opportunity that you get. And that sin has separated you from God because as much as God loves you, he cannot allow you into heaven with your sin. Your sin has to be dealt with first. The only way that God can deal with your sin is by punishing you. And the punishment is death and hell forever. That's what you deserve. That's what I deserve because I too am a sinner in need of God's grace. 
But God doesn't want to send you to hell. God doesn't want to send me to hell. God doesn't want to send anybody to hell. So God demonstrated or commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, that Jesus came and died on the cross because of his love for us, because of that love for you, because of that love for me. And the Bible says if you'd be willing today to confess your sin to God and repent of your sin, that God would save you because he loves you. Notice that gospel story woven through there, just love, 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 because of love, motivated by love, demonstrating his love. God so loved, woven all through the gospel. If you're here today and you don't know for sure that you're saved, it's as simple as this. Confess your sin to Jesus. I know that I'm a sinner, and I'm asking you to save me and forgive me of my sin because I believe that you are the Son of God, and I believe that you're the only way to heaven. It's called being saved or born again. And Jesus says in John chapter 3, no man shall see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. You need to be saved to go to heaven. But God loves you. Jesus died for you. Confess your sin and be saved today. That's the story of the gospel. I've heard people present the gospel where God's just mad. Like red, hot, mad, angry, fury, wrath, hell, super hot. Because God hates sin, and if you're a sinner, God hates your guts too. That's just like, I get it, all that's true, but you cannot. You cannot appropriately express the character of God without balancing his wrath with his love. His need for justice with his desire to give grace. Like, then it gets just lopsided. And then you go way far to the other direction. God's just love, 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 love. If God had a refrigerator, your picture would be on the, on the front of it. If God had a wallet, you'd be on the front of his wallet, you know. God just sits up in heaven thinking about you all the time, how much he misses you, and he cares about you. God just loves you right where you're at, just who you are. If you want to open up the little door of your heart and let Jesus walk right through there, he'd be tickled to death with that today. It's just like, no, 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 stop. That's not the gospel. The gospel is you have woefully sinned against the holy God. And God wants justice either out of your hide or his son's. Somebody's got to pay. But know this, it's all motivated by God's love. And so again, being able to appropriately articulate even the gospel through the lens of love or rebuke through the lens of love. Hey, bro, I love you. I don't want to see your wife and three kids leave you because you can't deal with your sin because that's where you're at today. I can have that conversation because I love you and I don't want to see this explode. Hey, your marriage is in a really, really tough spot. I care more about your marriage at this point than you do, which is really super sad. I prayed for your marriage more this week than you have, which is super sad. And either you're going to man up and be who you need to be for your family, or it's all going to blow away like dust in the wind. you got a choice to make. But I care. I'm invested. Are you? That's a rebuke. Again, filled with love. Paul never got to that level of rebuke. It was just an exhortation for him. But you see, spiritual leadership and discipleship always require personal sacrifice being involved in the life of another and being even more involved, invested in the life of another person, that requires you to put yourself to the side sometimes. <laughs> Paul writes to the church at Philippi, again, just heaping praise upon them because he wants to encourage them. 
Paul was greatly concerned that the church at Philippi would keep doing what they're doing, keep after the gospel, keep preaching Jesus, keep bringing people to Jesus, that their church would continue to be healthy. Where does Paul write this letter from? Prison. Paul's not sitting around going like, I haven't gotten a letter from the church at Philippi in years. They know I'm in prison, and here I am. Nobody even cares. Paul's like, hey, could somebody give me something to write with? I got some stuff I need to tell the church at Philippi. Sacrifice. And here's what Paul wrote. If you go back to Philippians chapter 1, we won't take time to do it this morning, but if you go back to Philippians 1, here's what Paul says. Hey, you guys heard him in prison, but don't worry about me. It's actually really good because the gospel's going places that it's never been before. How awesome is that? He was so invested in his role as a spiritual influence in their life that he didn't want them to spend a split second worrying about him. He was just fine. I'm more more worried about you guys. Again, if we take a look at Philippians chapter uh, 2, maybe even on the same opening in your Bible, Philippians chapter 2, verse number 19. Paul wanted to go to the church at Philippi, but he couldn't because he was in prison. So here's what he said in verse number 19. But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timotheus to you shortly, that you may be of good comfort for when I know your state. For I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ. But you know the proof of him that as a son with the Father, he hath served me in the gospel. Him, therefore, I hope to send to you presently, so soon as we shall say how it will go with me couple of things here. First of all, Paul says, I'm going to send Timothy to help you guys, to encourage you, because of all the people that I know, Timothy is the only one that I trust. And if you just sit for a split second and think about that statement, Paul at this point has been planting churches for over a decade. He's gone on multiple missionary journeys. He's rubbed shoulders with a lot of people. He knows a lot of pastors. He knows a lot of Christian workers, a lot of Christians really around the known world at the time. And he says, as I'm going through the list, the only person I can think of to send to you is Timothy because he's the only one that isn't so stinking selfish that he would actually take care of you. Those are my words, stinking selfish. It says, seek their own. Same thing, stinking selfish. Timothy's the only person I can think to send to you because everybody else is so worried about themselves and caught up in themselves. So Timothy was willing to sacrifice himself to be an encouragement. But it goes deeper than that. If you notice in verse number, I think it's uh, uh, 22, Paul says, and Timothy, he served with me in the gospel like a father with his son, and he was a help to me, but I'm going to send him to you. You see, Paul was in a unique position, position, and the fact that he wasn't in prison like you and I would think, like a, a prison cell with doors and bars and stuff like that, but he was under house arrest. He had a Roman guard with him 24-7, wasn't allowed to leave the place he was at, but he could have as many visitors as he wanted. They could stay for as long as they wanted. So Timothy, like a son, had been there with him, and he says, I'm going to send Timothy to you. But you know what that means? If he's with you, he's not with me. But I'm willing to let him go because you need him. That's what personal sacrifice looks like. And again, you will never have an influence in other people's lives as a spiritual influence if you're not willing to roll up your sleeves and put a little bit of sweat equity into it. Because building committed followers of Christ takes work and sacrifice. For me, there was not a single night this entire week that I did not get home before 10 o'clock at night because I was talking with people, encouraging them, urging them, exhorting them, and sometimes rebuking them. 
to walk with Jesus. Not a, a single night this week. I'm totally wiped out. Like uh, Friday night after our marriage conference, I hadn't even eaten dinner, and we, uh, we drive around forever trying to find a Taco Bell that's open. You know how difficult it is to find a Taco Bell open these days? The one on Baratania's closed, the one over at McCulley's closed. You have to drive out to, to uh, Kamoku. No, no, uh, uh, what, what's it called? Over by Leonard's. What's that area over there? Kapahulu, there we go. You have to go to Kapahulu to find a Taco Bell. And you get to the Taco Bell at 11.15, and they got a sign on the window that says, our system is down, Sorry. I don't even like, I don't even eat Taco Bell. My family wanted Taco Bell. And we drive around like a bunch of idiots at 11 o'clock at night trying to find Taco Bell. And so we finally wind up at the McDonald's drive-thru. Isn't that sad? Like the place that nobody wants to be at 1130 at night. And just like, this is terrible. It was an awful night. But here's the thing. I loved it. You know why? Because I got to spend time with people that night, encouraging them and challenging them in their faith and in their marriage and tell, encourage them to walk with Jesus. Crazy week, but for me, I, I love it. I love it. And so I would say that that wasn't a personal sacrifice on my behalf, but it was definitely an uncomfortable time for me. You'll never have an influence in people's lives if you're not willing to set aside yourself. Paul was ready, willing, and able to do that as well. Spiritual encouragement must come from a place of love. We've already talked about that. Again, verse number, uh, Philippians chapter 4, verse number 1, again, time and time again assured them of his love that he had. Even the opening of his letter in Philippians chapter 1, verse number 4, he says, always in every prayer of mine, making requests with joy. But the thing about investing in other, other people is that God gives you joy as you see other people growing in their faith. Paul was writing back to the church at Philippi because these people, he had seen them grow in their walk with Christ and it encouraged his heart. He's like, hey, you guys were partners together with me in the gospel, and God did great things, and greater things than we could have imagined God did. Paul will go on at the end of uh, Philippians chapter 4 and say, hey, when I was gone, one of the only churches that ever checked in on me to see how I was doing was you guys. Thanks for being a friend to me over all these years. Just again, praise, love, encouragement for what? For their growth and their faith. For me, it's one of the greatest joys of my life as a pastor to see people grow in their faith. I, mean, I wish I had time to just go through this auditorium uh, this morning and just talk about the people I've seen grow in their faith. Uh, Tommy and I are right here on the front row. Uh, they have been at Hui Kala for eight years, next, next week after next. Tommy was one of the first people to ever get saved at Hui Kala. Tommy was part of the first group that ever got baptized here at Hui Kala. Tommy and I were the first couple that I ever married at Hui Kala. And where are they at on a Sunday morning? Front row, Bible's open, ready to get it. I love that. That encourages my heart. Now, for every Tommy and Iris, there's a dozen of people that didn't make it. But I'm going to dwell on them. I'm just going to focus on the ones that did. Just about every one of the leaders of the small groups that we have are people that I personally discipled myself. And man, on a Wednesday night, it's a blast for me to see people teaching the Bible that I've had the opportunity to teach the Bible to. Awesome. And so look, sometimes you're going to pour into people. It's going to be a good investment. Sometimes it's not. But when you find a good investment, man, dump all your resources into that because that's worth mentoring, growing, developing, investing in. John says in 3 John, verse number four, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Man, I hope I can look you up 20 years from now, wherever you're at, and see that you're in church on a Sunday morning serving Jesus, teaching a Sunday school class, part of the hospitality team, leading people to Christ, encouraging people to be baptized. Faithful, that's what I'm looking for, and that's what God's looking for. But not only does spiritual leadership require having difficult conversations, spiritual leadership requires maintaining unity. 
A church is made up of sinners. And if you're new to who we call it, welcome to a room full of sinners. That's what we are. Now, we're majority of us are sinners that have been forgiven by the grace of God, been saved, born again. But we're not perfect. Never will be. And in any church, there will be competing priorities, competing personalities, and this desire for self over Jesus. And when that's identified in the church, it's got to be snuffed out. It's got to be gotten rid of. It's either got to be repented of or got to be totally disposed of. Because here's the thing. The church has a mission. I say a mission singularly. The mission of the church is what Jesus said right before he left. Go ye therefore into all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even into the end of the world. Amen. We call that the Great Commission. That's the mission of the church. You can boil it down to four words. Go, win, baptize, teach. That's it. That's the mission of the church. Now, there are other auxiliary things that we do outside of the focal mission that help draw people to Christ, that help make Jesus look good, that love our neighbor. For example, probably three or four times a year, we'll go out, we'll paint over graffiti, we'll pull weeds, we'll hand out water bottles to to folks, we'll clean up garbage, we'll sweep up cigarette butts from the sidewalk because we love our community and we want to show the love of Christ to our city. But please understand, painting over graffiti is not the mission of our church. Our mission of our church, go, win, baptize, teach. That's it. So we make up these really nice glossy cards for you to hand out as you go into our community to tell people about Jesus. On the back of those glossy cards is the gospel. That's how you win people to Jesus Christ. After they've been won to Christ, you encourage them to get plugged into a local Bible-preaching New Testament church where they can be baptized to show their commitment to Jesus, and then they begin to learn everything that Jesus said until the day that they die. And that's the mission of our church. That's why for me and for you, it should completely and totally grind your gears when churches say statements like, the mission of our church is to end systemic systemic racism in our generation. That's not the mission of the church. The mission of our church is to end human trafficking. It's not the mission of the church. The mission of the church is to go win, baptize, teach. You say, well, do you not care about racism? Do you not care about human trafficking? Absolutely. But here's the thing. Ending systemic racism is not done by a 12-point program or a 12-week program that we lead people through the history of racism and the psychology of racism and all this other stuff. It's about rebuking sin. If you think you're better than somebody because of the color of your skin, you need to repent and remember who you are. That was a rebuke in case you didn't know. I'll rebuke that all day long. But here's the, here's the hope that you have for racism, the gospel. Jesus Christ died for your sins. And please make no mistake, God is, is sickened by your sin. It makes him want to vomit. But please understand, God loves you and is willing to save you from your sin and all of it. And racism is just another sin you need to repent of. So actually funny thing about it, the gospel actually fixes racism. Isn't it weird? We don't have to put together a separate program. God already created one called the gospel, the Great Commission. Well, don't you care about women who are trafficked in human trafficking? Absolutely. It's a blight on our nation. 
And here's one of the worst parts about it, is that Christian men and women are a part of human trafficking. What? One of the primary reasons why human trafficking exists in our, in our society today, pornography and prostitution. So if you look at porn, you're part of the problem. You know how we fix it? Repent. Believe the gospel that Jesus died for sinners and your sin should be put under the blood of Calvary and repented of and never picked up again. That fixes human trafficking if people would believe the gospel and be saved. So we don't have to create all these separate programs and separate missions. Just preach the gospel, rebuke sin wherever you find it, and the whole thing will fix itself. You say, well, that's too simple. You want me to complicate it for you? Again, God's not the author of confusion, but of peace. So again, we're unified together under the mission of the church. So when people begin to say things like, well, I believe that our church should uh, make, the, make it a mission to end homelessness in Honolulu. No. Well, do you not care about homeless people? I greatly care about them. And we'll do everything we can to make sandwiches and to hand out gospel tracts and to talk to people that have the mental faculties about the gospel and try to bring people to church and tell people about Jesus. 100%. But look... If we spent billions of dollars to end homelessness in the city, and you think by making a, a sack lunch for somebody can end it, you, you just don't understand the depths of the problem. Because the problem is a sin problem, not a sandwich problem. Does that make sense? So again, we're not going to put all of our eggs in the basket of some social justice issue. We're going to put all of our eggs in the basket of the gospel. But here's the problem. Sometimes that rubs people the wrong way and causes division in churches. So what what do we do? First of all, spiritual people are alarmed by division. Like this is like, oh, I think there's something going on over here that we need to take care of. Somebody told me that these two people aren't getting along, and I think we should look into that a little bit further. I don't know what type of churches you've been a part of in the past, but I know of churches where this family over here doesn't like that family over there. And if they're having a church get together and one of them knows the other one's not going to be there, the other one's not going to come. At a handshaking time, they purposely move around each other because they don't want to talk to any, anybody. They see them in the lobby. They're going to wait until they leave and then they'll actually go out and get in their car. Over my dead body in this church will that happen. This family over here don't like this family over here. We're going to sit down and hash it out like grown-ups. Well, I think we've just come to a place where we can't agree to get along. Then you need to find another church to go to. <gasps> you can't do that. I can and I will. You know why? Because unity is so important to Jesus' church that we can't afford to have fractures. We can't afford to have cracks. The Bible calls it schism. Because here's what cracks do. Cracks don't fix themselves. Did you know that? My wife forces me to watch all these home improvement shows. When people buy a house and they begin doing all the, the research and the, the, the home inspector comes and stuff like that, one of the worst things that I figured out in the world that they can say when they do the housing inspection is what? Cracks in the foundation. And they go, oh, we didn't budget for that. Of course you didn't. But here's the thing. Nobody says, it's fine, just leave it. We're going to put in a, a big island in the kitchen with marble. Nobody says that. What do they say? But we'll have to fix it. You know why? Because cracks don't fix themselves. If you've got something in your heart towards somebody in this church, it's not going to fix itself. You need to go to that person and make it right. 
And please understand, if I have done something to wrong you, I desperately want to know so that I can make it right. Because we can't afford division in the church, that's for sure. And so spiritual people are alarmed by division because they recognize the danger of division. The majority of church splits that take place generally aren't over doctrinal issues. Like, oh, the pastor doesn't believe that the Bible is the word of God anymore. We should totally split the church and take another half with us. It generally starts with, I don't like those people over there. They were unkind to me. My kid didn't get a coloring sheet when they went to class last week. They handed out snacks, and my kid didn't get a snack. Or <laughs> We had a lady one time. Um, we, uh, our children's ministry does a bang-up job. Just know that. I believe we have one of the best children's ministries uh, in the world. And we do everything we can to try to help families. And so this, uh, this one mom had come and says, I'm really concerned because when my kid comes to church, he gets a lot of sugar and candy and lollipops and stuff like that. And so kind of concerned that he doesn't get anything healthy at Sunday school. Okay, what should we do? Well, I think they need more fruits and, and healthy options for kids to choose from when they come to Sunday school. Okay, great. And so we, look, this is how, how much we've tried to accommodate we got some grapes and some little cuties and some apples and stuff like that. But guess what? The kid, when he comes to, to Super Church, you think he wants apples and grapes? No, he doesn't. He wants suckers. And so then the mom says, well, I've told my son he's not allowed to get this candy, but he gets it every week anyways. We want him to eat the fruit. Then parent your kids. I mean, like, we, we can encourage him to do it, but we can't. Do you want us to not give him candy? Yeah, don't give him candy. Okay, and then the kid pitches a fit. And so then the mom comes back here. Okay, the kid doesn't want the candy. The kid, uh, the kid does want the candy. doesn't want the fruit. He's pitched a fit. He's mad. And she said, I just think we need to take all sugar away from all the kids and just give them fruit. <laughs> you want us to give all the kids grapes on a Sunday morning? Yeah. No. <gasps> what? You, you don't care about the health and well-being? No, I do, but I also believe in fun. Kids need to snort fun dip once in their life, Right? And you realize, I'll never do it again. <laughs> Every kid needs that opportunity. And I'm not going to be the pastor of the, of the church that hands out grapes to kids on Sunday mornings. It's not. Kids need to have fun. Come on. And you know what she did? She left our church. I'm sorry, but if you're going to get mad over us not handing out fruit to kids on a Sunday morning that aren't even your kids, you should definitely find a different church because we're just really about Jesus. That's it. So again, but again, when we see division, we should be alarmed by that. We should see where this leads, and we should seek to rectify that, the first opportunity that we get. One author put it this way. He says, because of quarreling, the father's dishonored, the son is disgraced. His people are demoralized and discredited. The world is turned off and confirmed in unbelief. Fractured fellowship robs Christians of joy and effectiveness, robs God of glory, and robs the world of the true testimony of the gospel. It hurts God. It hurts the church. It hurts unsaved people when you and I can't get along. So either we fix what's broken or somebody needs to go. And there have been people who have attended Who We Call before that I've sat down with, with my wife and said, hey, look, if you're not willing to make it right with this family over here, you need to leave. If you're not willing to repent, and here's what they said. I can love them, but I don't have to like them. Actually, you do. Well, I don't ever have to talk to them again. Actually, you do. And if we're going to create that environment here, you're not going to be here. 
And so I said, you need to repent, make it right, or you need to find another church. Well, fine, then we'll just leave. Okay, goodbye. Let's have a word of prayer before you go. Lord, I pray that you would break them of a spirit of pride and give them a desire for unity the way your word desires. Send them on their way with your grace and blessing. Amen. Goodbye. Really? Absolutely. You know why? Because God wants unity in his church. And if we can't have it, we can't be on the same page together. You see this all the time in sports teams where they get three or four superstars and you think, oh, they're totally going to win a championship this year and they're total duds. I remember the Lakers when we were struggling so bad. Had Kobe Bryant, Steve Nash, Dwight Howard, all on the same team together. You thought, ta, championship, hang it in the rafters. They didn't make the playoffs that year. Because you had competing personalities and nobody wanted to work as a team. There was disunity. Problematic. Not in Jesus' church. So how do we have unity? First of all, Jesus brings unity. We're all brought together not under the banner of who we call a Baptist church. We're not brought together under the banner of the pastor and his personality. We're not all brought together under the banner of anything other than Jesus Christ. We're under the banner of Jesus. And we're one because Jesus has bought us with his blood and we are one body of Christ. One. Personal opinion, again, Take it or leave it. I don't care. This is my personal opinion. I think it's very, very uh, harmful and or dangerous when churches begin to split up by ethnicities for activities. Well, we're having the Korean uh, fellowship this afternoon at uh, 1 o'clock. So if you're Korean, and uh, bring your favorite Korean dish and all the Koreans will be having uh, lunch uh, today after church. Hey, I like Kalbi. Can I get in on that somewhere? Like, can, can me and my white family come to your Korean fellowship? Or would that be too much? You laugh, but it happens. I'll get the Filipino fellowship coming up on Wednesday night, and all the Filipinos get together, you know, bring your favorite Filipino dish, and we'll have a Filipino Bible study. I like lumpia. Can I come and worship Jesus with you guys? <laughs> Amen. Come on. But again, we're creating factions when Jesus just wants us all to be unified. One of the benefits of our church is that we're not made up of a bunch of white guys from the South, from Kentucky, like me. I get to learn from other people's experiences, where you came from, what your culture is, how you came to your faith in Jesus, the type of churches that you grew up in, the things that were really healthy and the things that were unhealthy. I'm blessed by that. I don't want to get to know a bunch of people like me because we're unified together because Jesus Christ is our King. That's the unification here. So Jesus brings unity, first of all, through our humble worship of him. That's why it's so important for you to be gathered together with the body of Christ to worship Jesus. And some people are like, well, I'll just catch it online. That's not worshiping Jesus with the body of Christ. If it were that easy, man, we'll save tens of thousands of dollars, hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, and just cancel the rent on this big building I'll sit on my, my, my couch in my living room, record a little YouTube video for you and give you a Spotify playlist. We can all just worship together on the internet. That's not the idea. We're unified because we gather together as the body of Christ and we can see each other eyeball to eyeball and that encourages us and keeps us on the same page. Again, personal preference, I'll say this right out the gate. I love our Wednesday nights here at Huicala where we have all of our small groups meeting on this side over here in circles 
We have five small groups for adults. Our teens that meet in the lobby. And over here we have our tables for discipleship. I love that. Because we can look over and I can see, hey, there's a guy that just came on Sunday for the very first time. He's in a small group this week. That's super cool. Hey, there's this gal over here and her husband. They're new. They're part of a small group. That's super cool. Hey, I don't know that lady that's in discipleship, but I, but I keep seeing her week after week over there. She's doing a bang-up job. She hasn't missed a single week, and I've been watching too. That encourages us as we gather together as the body of Christ. So could we have a small group that meets in people's houses? Sure. Could we have discipleship that takes place at Starbucks? Definitely. But I think it encourages the church body when we can see one another again one more time throughout the middle of the week and say, hey, how are you doing? I see you over there teaching kids. I didn't even know you could like teach kids. That's awesome. And we're encouraged by one another because we all realize we're all on the same page. Whether you're in discipleship, whether you're part of a small group, whether you're serving in children's ministry, all of our goal is to teach people to love Jesus. Man, what a win. That keeps us unified, but we're also unified around solid Bible doctrine. Please understand, doctrine either unites or divides. It either puts us all on the same page together, or we're definitely not on the same page together. Doctrine is the glue that holds the church together, and when we lose solid Bible doctrine, we're toast. Case in point, if someone wants to come here and say, hey, I believe that, there's, that all roads lead to heaven, and I believe that we need to change the structure of this church, and your message that you have is too narrow. We need to make it a little bit broader. All paths lead to heaven. I would say, this is not the right church for you because you believe a false doctrine. And that either unites us or divides us. Either our brothers in Christ are those who hold to doctrinal fidelity who believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he was born of a virgin, that he was completely and totally sinless, that he bore in himself the the sins of the entire world, that through Christ alone we are saved by faith alone and grace alone. Man, if that's what you believe, hello, brother, hello, sister, we're on the same page. If you believe that Jesus Christ came because our greatest problem was sickness or being poor, and Jesus came to save you from a purposeless life of being broke and sick all the time, you are not my brother in Christ and you have believed a false gospel. What makes that determination? Doctrine. Oh, so the pastor gets to decide who's a real follower and who's not? No, the Bible does. The Bible's really clear. It doesn't amount to a hill of beans what I think about what somebody believes. What does the Bible say? And doctrine either unites us together or it divides us. That's why I never have and never will go to an interfaith prayer breakfast where we gather together with uh, Muslims and, and, and Jehovah's Witnesses and we all pray to our favorite God. That's a bunch of hogwash rubbish. You are not my brother. We are not in this together. We are not fighting the same fight. And you have believed the enemy and you believe the lie. You're not my brother. Why? Doctrine either unites or divides. And if we are the body of Christ and we're unified under solid Bible teaching, solid Bible doctrine. Turn over to Galatians, if you will. We're going to take a look at one passage of Scripture before we're done. I didn't say we're done, so we're going to take a look at one more passage before we're done. I want to clarify that. Galatians chapter 1. Paul is writing to the churches of Galatia. Not a single church, the church at Galatia. There wasn't one. There was about five churches in this region that he was writing a collective letter to. 
And so he writes to them. Now this, you want to see what a, a textbook rebuke looks like? This is it, Galatians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who God hath raised him from the dead. Number one, I want you to understand, I'm Paul, I'm an apostle, and frankly, I don't care what you think about my authority because it wasn't given by you anyways. It was given to me by God the Father and his Son who he hath raised from the dead. So just from the very beginning, you notice it's not Paul, humble servant of Christ, your brother in the faith. No, he's like, hey, I want you to know that I'm writing this authoritatively, and frankly, I don't need your stamp of approval or authority. I've already been given it by God himself. Next, and all the brethren which were with me unto the churches of Galatia, grace and peace be unto you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this evil present world according to the will of God and our Father. Now, again, verses three and four, three is kind of a blanket, grace and peace be unto you, kind of like a, hey, how's it going before we jump in? But first number four is the gospel in a nutshell. Jesus Christ died for sinners and your hope is in him and him alone. Why is that important? Verse number five, to whom be glory forever and ever, amen. Verse six. I marvel that you're so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you that would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so I say now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that you have received, let him be accursed. Man, from the jump, Paul is not playing. He says, hey guys, I'm shocked that you've been so quickly removed to another gospel, which isn't really another gospel at all because there's only one gospel. And let me just tell you this, if any man, myself included, or even an angel from heaven come and preach to you another gospel, let that guy go to hell. What? That's what it means to let that man be accursed. Let him receive the curse of God and receive God's judgment upon his life. But Paul says, if anybody else comes with another gospel, which you believed, and, you, and Paul's, like, Paul's like, dude, you guys blew over so quick. He didn't stand for truth. I'm shocked that you're so quickly removed to another gospel, which isn't even another gospel. You believe a fake gospel, and you've perverted the gospel of Christ. The word pervert's a strong word, right? He was mad, 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 mad. What is this? This is a textbook rebuke. And again, he didn't pull any punches either. You guys have really messed up. Why? Because they messed with the gospel, the churches at Galatia had believed that there was an add-on. You had to have faith in Jesus, but you still had to do all the stuff of the Old Testament to be saved. And Paul's like, you messed with the gospel, and you messed with the wrong person. And man, Paul lets it rip. And so that doctrine was so important to Paul that he was willing to, to go toe-to-toe and to rebuke it. But we also find God brings unity in the church through the obedience of his word. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, we don't have to take time to take turn, we don't have time to take to turn there today. But he says in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the, on the Mount, hey, if you're worshiping God in the temple and you need to bring an offering, and then you remember that you've got something against your brother, don't even take your offering. Just set your offering to the side. 
go to your brother and say, hey, we need to talk and resolve this. And after you've resolved it, then you can bring your, your offering forward because unity is so important to God. One of the most beautiful things I've ever witnessed as a pastor is when a couple of guys or a couple of ladies before a service will go out in the atrium and talk something out and pray. Sometimes they'll miss a portion of the song service. I have people miss the entire service because they were out there making things right with one another in a spirit of unity. It's one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen in my life as a pastor. Two people are so committed to loving and serving one another that if they have ill feelings towards one another, I can't even worship God without making this right with you first. And so it just comes from being obedient. It also comes from walking in the Spirit. Again, we're united because we choose to walk in the Spirit. Again, the Bible tells us in Galatians, walk in the Spirit, you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. And so as we're committed to walking with Jesus, we'll have a spirit of unity. But again, if we're all Spirit-filled, and we should be, Do you know what types of things will come out in our church? It'll be a spirit of love. It'll be a spirit of joy. It'll be a spirit of long-suffering and peace and gentleness. All that's going to come out in our church because we're all walking with the Spirit, and the Spirit brings out that fruit, Galatians 5, 22 and 23. So if we're walking in the Spirit, there can't help but be a spirit of unity here. Again, we're not unified behind the pastor We're not unified behind the name of the church. We're unified by Jesus Christ, solid Bible doctrine, our worship of him together, and our commitment to the community. So, a few final thoughts. First of all, check your heart before you confront another person. Maybe you need to rebuke. Maybe you need to exhort. But before you ever do it, would you just check your heart? I don't want to rebuke somebody in anger because I'm mad at them. Oh, I'm totally going to give that guy a piece of of my mind. Don't do it. Just pray and ask God to give you a spirit. And again, if you have to rebuke somebody, please do it in a spirit of love. Hey, I love you, and that's why I'm bringing this up, but this looks really ugly for you. I don't want it to be that way. (laughs) I've had so many talks with guys, challenging them, rebuking them. And when I rebuke them, I always do it biblically. Hey, here's what you've done, and here's why that violates Scripture. Oftentimes, nine times out of ten, when I lay it all out like that and I point them back to Scripture, oftentimes they'll say something like this. Well, it sounds really bad when you put it that way. (laughs) Yeah, because it's bad. That's why you need somebody to call you out. And here's the thing. I want to be willing to receive a rebuke as well. Let me tell tell you this. I'm going to put this out as a blanket statement to this church. If I am in sin or have done something sinful, would you please love me enough to confront me with that, please? Because if you know that I'm sinning and I haven't repented and you don't confront me, you don't really love me. You just want to keep a false sense of peace. And there have been people throughout churches, all through church history, that have purposely covered up sin because they didn't want to hurt anybody. Sin always destroys everything it touches, and covering up sin doesn't make it go away. And so if you love me enough, would you confront me if, I, if I've stepped out of line? One of the most beneficial things for me as a pastor is people who have loved me enough to say, hey, you said this from the pulpit. I'm not sure if you meant it that way or not, but here's what you said, and here's kind of how I took it. And that helps me. Many times where I had to come back and clarify some things that I'd said because it came across the wrong way. There's been times where I said things because I thought it was funny, but it's really hurtful to somebody. 
uh, instead of saying, oh, you should just have thicker skin. You know, I was just joking around. I say, I'm really sorry. Would you forgive me? I didn't mean to hurt you. I consider you a friend and a brother, and I love you. And the fact that I would make a joke that would hurt your feelings really hurts my heart. So would you forgive me for that? But when come, people come at me with the wrong spirit, uh, it, does, it usually doesn't end well. So check your heart before you have to confront somebody because the way you confront them makes all the difference in the world. Next, ensure that you speak with grace and a spirit of love. Hey, you know, I've noticed that you haven't been in church a lot, but your wife and your kids are. I've noticed that your wife seems to provide a lot of the spiritual leadership for your family. And I'm concerned for that. I don't know if you guys have stuff going on at work or competing priorities or things like that. I'm just saying, like, what I've observed, it seems like your wife is carrying the bulk of the spiritual leadership for your family, and you're just out of here. What's up with that? That's a spirit of grace, humility, love. I'm concerned for you. Or I could say, you need to man up and take the britches away from your wife and put them on for yourself. You call yourself a man, you should actually start to lead like a man because you're a spiritual woman at this point. Which one of those do you think will bring about the desired result? You can demean people, but it only works for so long. You can demean people and put them down and cower them and lead by fear, but that only lasts for so long. And first of all, it's toxic. It's not spirit-filled. But secondly, at some point, people are going to be like, I don't get any love and appreciation from you. All I get is anger, fear, bullying. That doesn't work for me anymore. And then guess what? Then they want to run to a church where you know, Jesus has a refrigerator with your picture on the front of it because they need the balance of love. And so again, if you need to speak truth to somebody, you should, but you should do it in a spirit of love with a whole lot of grace added on. Next, guard against division in your own life and in the church. Hey, I need to check and make sure that my attitude's good towards everybody else. I talked to our married couples on Friday night that anger often turns into bitterness and bitterness turns into resentment if we don't deal with it. So the moment that somebody frustrates me, I need to figure out, do I need to go to that person and make that right or should I just give grace in that and just move on? There's times where I just say, hey, they were probably having a bad day. Hey, they probably didn't understand where I was coming from. Hey, they probably didn't mean what they said. I'm just gonna give grace. But man, if it happens again, I think I might need to throw the flag on that. But again, I've got to make sure that I guard against division in my own heart first. And then if I hear about it in our church, I need to be on point with that too. I want to be ridiculously clear this morning. If you begin to talk about problems with people that are not part of the solution, you are guilty of, anybody want to help me with the word? Gossip. Very few things have split churches like gossip has. And let me just tell you, at who we call a Baptist church, there's a zero tolerance policy for gossip. None. If there's a problem, you talk about it with the people that are involved in the problem or the person that God's given you to find a solution who is your pastor. So if you know something that's not right, somebody said something in your small group, like, oh, that guy over there, he's, he's such a jerk. You know, would you let me know? Hey, pastor, I just want to let you know, I'm going to share this with you and then I'm done with it. I don't care to know what happens after this, but here's what I know. Because there's been times before where people have said, oh, you know, I heard so-and-so left our church. It's like, yeah, I'm not really sure what happened. They won't return my phone calls anymore. Well, they've been struggling for about a year or so. What? Well, yeah, I mean, I knew they were struggling, but I, mean, I didn't know what to do to help them. Let somebody know? Like, that would have been step one. So again, if you know of problems that are taking place in our church, again, help 
the people that can find a solution to find a solution for it. So again, I got to guard against that and make sure that everything's right. And again, maybe I need to confront somebody that said something. Hey, you said this, and it kind of came across as maybe a little catty or a little bit unkind. Help me to understand your heart behind that. He said, well, that's a, that's a hard conversation to have. I know, we're talking about spiritual leadership, aren't we? We're talking about helping people grow. Finally, be quick to seek resolution. This should be in your own personal life, in your work life, in your marriage, with your kids. Hey, I got to find a solution to this and move on. I want to be quick to find a solution to this and find resolution. Hey, I haven't talked to you in a couple of weeks and it seems like you've been avoiding me a little bit. Is everything cool between us? Because we used to talk every Sunday. I want to be quick to seek resolution. For me, I try to talk to every single person every single Sunday and I don't make it. Um, But I hang out on the sidewalk until the last person leaves. I want to talk to everybody every Sunday. But there's been a couple of times where I've noticed people personally, purposely avoiding me. Uh, And I don't know how that is. Like I stand in front of the one exit door that you have on purpose. But people like try to like slide past somebody or they wait till I turn my head. I'm talking to somebody and I bolt the other direction. I'll give somebody a pass once, but if you do that twice, I'm going to call you and say, what's up? Like, why are you avoiding me? Like, have I done something? Have I said something? Is something not right? Because again, I'll, all I want is unity. That's all I want. I want all of us to be on the same page, worshiping Jesus together. And if there's something that I've done that's, that's causing a sticking point for you, man, let's fix it so we can move on. But again, we gotta have that spirit towards everybody in this church. And I don't know how you apply today's message. I know that the spirit always applies it differently for every person. Maybe there's some, somebody you need to seek forgiveness from. Maybe there's somebody that you need to confront about their sin that you've just been kind of giving them a pass. Maybe you need to have a hard conversation with your spouse, with your kids, somebody in our church. I don't know. But here's what I do know. You're gonna need God's grace for it. You're gonna make sure that you, you're good and prayed up for it. You're going to make sure that, you know, that everything in your life is right, all your ducks are in a row, so that you have the ability and the platform that, and the capability to be able to help somebody to come to a right relationship again. Most important thing in the world, if you're here today and you don't know for sure that you're saved, if you're not 100% sure that you died today, that you would go to heaven, know this, the greatest opposition that you have in your life is yourself. And the greatest Savior that you will ever know, whose name is Jesus, it's not a matter of joining our church, becoming a Baptist, or taking a class, or getting baptized. It's about knowing for sure that your sins are forgiven and heaven is your home. So if you're here today and you don't know for sure that you're saved, please don't leave here. We can take 10 minutes and open the Bible with, with you and show you how you can know for sure that you're saved today, but that's the most important thing. But those of us that are Christians, unity. I'm telling you this, in the history of who we call a Baptist church, we turn uh, eight years old in a couple of weeks. In the history of our church, we've never had a problem that I personally knew of that lasted longer than seven days, ever in the history of our church. And the second I caught wind of it, we were going to meet, but people were out of town or work schedules and stuff like that, great. First opportunity we're going to meet, we're going to take care of this, and we're going to resolve it, or somebody's going to have to leave. Because that's what God's spirit is. And we've had such a sweet spirit in this church. We've never had any drama. We've never had a church split. We never had 40, 50 people leave our church because they were mad about something because we have protected unity at all costs. Let's make sure that we keep that spirit alive. Thanks for joining us for the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast. We'd love to have you as our guest this Sunday morning at 10 a.m. You'll find exciting classes for your keiki, 
a welcoming church family, and a message from the Bible that's sure to encourage your heart. Join us this Sunday. You belong here.